Please turn in your copy of God's Holy Word to the Gospel according to John. The Gospel according to John and chapter 11, a text that undoubtedly is familiar to many of us. Our focus is going to be in the preaching of the Word, really on this expression by the Jews in verse 36, Behold how he loved. That's going to be the text and the theme today, this afternoon. But in order to understand the totality of that as much as we can, that is, in our time, we'll begin our reading back in John 11, the first verse, and we'll read down uh, to verse 44. So please, this is a bit of a lengthier reading for our sermon text. Give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. These are the very words of our God. Let us receive them in that way. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent that ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about fifteen furlongs off. And many of the Jews came to Mary, uh, Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. 
And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she had heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus therefore again groaning in himself cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldst believe, thou should see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave cloths, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray for the preaching. Our glorious God above, we thank you for this word. Now we ask that your minister would preach it faithfully. This is a text far too rich for any man to preach, especially in one sermon. So we pray that your Holy Ghost would come upon the man now to preach this word in power, that the power of God would be manifest in the preaching of the Holy Scripture through your instrument now, that we would all be touched with the love of God, with the love of Christ that surpasseth understanding and knowledge itself. Oh God, only you can do this. So open our hearts now, whether uh, the preacher is preaching, open his heart to the love of God, and whether it is the people who hear, open their hearts to the love of God as well, that we would have our eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ, that he may increase in our esteem, and that his care and compassion for us would be greater by the time that we are done than the day, the time that we began. And so, Father, to those ends that God be glorified, we pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O God, my strength and my redeemer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening my theme is simple. It is to preach on Christ's sympathy. God's love expressed in the flesh in Christ as our compassionate high priest, our merciful high priest. You know, the theme is rather simple, 
But the task, if I may use the expression, is Herculean. Because Christ's compassion is so vast, we cannot but get the slightest view of it in this life. The apostle said truly that the love of Christ, what? It passeth knowledge. It passeth knowledge that none of us will ever in, our, in fullness be able to understand the love of Christ. But even the most fleeting glimpses of Christ's love are such an encouragement to us. There's an encouragement in this text for the believer themselves to put themselves in the text to behold how Christ loves them even to the end. And I pray this is also an encouragement to the unbeliever here to take Christ for yourself. You will never find anyone so deeply committed to the welfare of his people as this Jesus that is before you. And so may this be the day when the love of God is shed abroad in your own hearts by the Holy Ghost as you consider our Savior here in the text. And so as we consider our theme of Christ's sympathetic love, we'll consider it under three heads from our text. Three areas that we must be confronted with the love and compassion of Christ. The first is to behold how he loves in his compassion, in his feeling for us. Second is to behold how he loves by expressing it in his work. It's not just a feeling that the love has, the Lord has of love for us, but he expresses it in his works. And then third is an imperative for us today and perhaps maybe riffing on the theme that Reverend Kohler had set before us, which is that we are to show how he loves. We are to show how he loves to others. And so, Our first heading is to behold how he loves in his compassion. Now, we've been in the book of Hebrews, and you remember Hebrews 4.15 quite well, I trust, when it speaks of Christ in this way. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Right? That's an extraordinary thought, isn't it? That the God-man, God in the flesh, our high priest seated in heaven's throne right now, it is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That's a great and veritable truth, isn't it? That the Lord Jesus Christ is touched, that he himself sympathizes with our infirmities. Now, we can memorize this truth, and we ought to, and I hope, boys and girls, you have memorized it, but maybe it is to you a fleeting thing. Maybe it is to you without substance for your soul. Maybe it just resides as a piece of knowledge about the Lord Jesus Christ, but your soul hasn't really grabbed a hold of it. So our weak faith really needs the truth of Christ's love demonstrated, doesn't it? And he has. And that's one of the uses of the gospel narratives, right? Is to take the theological truths that we have in the epistles and elsewhere and really to put legs to them that you would see the truth of all of the Scripture is true in Jesus Christ. And so when you come to a text like this, you are to take note of how he loves. That's why this beautiful word here is behold in verse 36, isn't it? Doesn't that word confront us? Doesn't it say, take note, behold how he loves. You're not just to know that he loves, but you are to take note of how he loves. It's 
So that, that word is there, so you would take note and put away the doubts, right? Does Jesus love me? Does Jesus care about me? Especially in your afflictions, beloved. You are to turn to a text like this, this very text, and mull it over in your soul. And say that even in the shadow of death, I can point to this word and say, Behold how he loves and loves me, the believer. So I want to first summarize some of the details in our narrative. This is a familiar text. And as the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt, doesn't it? So let's try to observe some of its details. And we can't be exhaustive. There's so much here. Even as I was reading it, new things, uh, same old things in a new way came to me. And we won't be able to consider all 44 verses. But let me look at a few things with you as you consider its context. Earlier, as you remember how this chapter begins, Christ had received a message from Lazarus' sisters that he was sick. Verse 3, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. The first observation is this, and maybe we read it over too quickly. What do the sisters know? Not only that Lazarus is sick, but that Jesus loves him. Behold, right? He whom thou lovest is sick. Isn't that an extraordinary thought? That they knew Jesus loved Lazarus. That's a wonderful truth of the faith, friends. You can have an assurance that you are loved by Jesus. Beloved, if you have saving faith, you can rest assured of the love of God, as we considered in the communion service in Romans 8.32. There are so many evidences to you that you are beloved of God. You know, the problem is in our faith, right? We, we sometimes look at, at our life, even things like the faith that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you see those as evidences maybe that you love the Lord. But really, you need to flip that around. Those are evidences that you are loved by God. Right? If you trust in Jesus alone uh, for salvation, that you say, I do not cling to, the, to any good works of mine, that's an evidence of what? That you are beloved of him. Right? Because he has poured into your heart saving faith that says, I do not trust in myself, my trust is in my Redeemer. That is an evidence that you are beloved of God. We love, why? Because he first loved us. Isn't that the truth of the scripture? What of your repentance of sin and your desire to follow Jesus no matter how imperfectly? That's an evidence of what? That you are beloved of him. I can't go much further into this idea, but I trust that's given you some thoughts. You can look at, boys and girls, uh, your confession of faith, chapter 18, and look at the assurance of salvation there. And all those markers of assurance are really meant to show you that uh, your assurance is that God loves you. And God has come to save you in Christ. And what I love about that text is it, 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 it synthesizes out of the scripture, of course, uh, not that text, that, that chapter, that uh, you can have an infallible assurance of God's love for you, believer. And that ought to astonish you. And you need to take the expression here in our text and turn it around on yourself. Behold how he loved me. Behold how he loved me. And that is off the way that we have to, we have to look at this text. Now, lest you even think maybe, maybe, you know, the sisters were here trying to flatter Jesus or try to manipulate him in some way, the Holy Ghost confirms 
Christ's love in verse 5. I love how the the Holy Ghost does this. They speak in verse 3. The Holy Ghost narrates in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. See, the things that they knew about the Lord's love was actually true, which is why, like our confession says, you can have an infallible assurance of the love of God. Here the Holy Ghost testifies of it. Now, he loved them all, right? All three here. But here's where we need to pay attention. Though the Lord loved them, what did he do? He allowed Lazarus to die. These things aren't contrary, right? The difficulty, even the pain of death, is not contrary to the love of God in Jesus Christ. Why did he do it? He said in verse 11, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Jesus, we'll read, was going to manifest the glory of God through Lazarus' death and resurrection that his disciples may believe. Boys and girls, the sleeping here, though, is meant that Lazarus uh, died, right? And his body rested in the grave. In fact, they misunderstood. You see that in the text, don't you? Um, in uh, chapter 11, verse uh, 12, right? They're thinking that when he says sleep, that uh, the disciples do, that uh, he is resting, right? He's doing well. In other words, they're thinking something like this. He's recovering from his illness, right? If you get some rest, like we say, right? Boys and girls, we'll have you rest when you're sick. They're thinking, well, he's resting. Very good. But no, that's how the Bible teaches uh, of the death of a believer, that they sleep. And that's why the Holy Ghost says in verse 13, Jesus spake of his death. And that's that beautiful picture of death for the believer. That the believer in the grave, right, the imagery is of our bodies resting in the grave as though we are in our bed. Right? Whereas for the unbeliever, uh, the, the, it becomes like their prison cell for the day of the resurrection. Their body is almost in chains in the grave. But for the believer, it's they sleep. They are still united to Christ. It's a gentle thing. It's not the same as what cults talk about, uh, soul sleep, where your soul is asleep. No. Uh, in death, the believer's, uh, body rests in the grave as in the bed, but their soul is dispatched to heaven. As the Lord Jesus said to the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. Right? They're not asleep. He's actually alive, more alive to God than he ever was before in the very presence of God. That's not sleeping in that sense. Now we praise God for this, right? Because what's the desire for the believer as with Paul? For I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. You see, when, when we die, we are with Christ, which is actually far better than sort of the Bethanies of this world, the miseries of this world. You know, some of you might anticipate being with the Lord very soon as your days draw near to an end. You know, you need to let your soul ache for Christ's presence, as Paul did, and not fear if your faith is in Christ, right? You know, you need to... Let your soul ache for the presence of God. You know, shortly, soon, I will be with my beloved. And others of you have believing family that are near the end of their days. And your soul must be comforted as well, ought it not, that they will know the joy of being in the presence of Christ very soon. This is the truth of God's word. Well, 
after coming back to Lazarus, after he had died, Jesus resolved to go and raise Lazarus from the dead. The disciples were alarmed because this was an undertaking fraught with danger. Verse 8, his disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? They're asking him, uh, the Jews have been trying to stone you. Why are you going back? That was back in John 10. We obviously have not been going sequentially through this gospel. But in John 10, the Jews wanted to stone Christ for blasphemy. And this is their, these are their words. Because that thou being a man, makest thyself God. And so they wanted to stone him. And so we come to our text with some irony. Because the Jews themselves are helping us understand our text very well. That Jesus is who in the flesh? He is God in the flesh, isn't he? Thou being a man, makest thyself God. He is the God-man. What is one of the great truths of First John when it comes to who God is or what he is? God is love. God is love, right? And... uh here you have before you the man Jesus, in whom dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Colossians 2.9. And so what you have here is the fullness of the love of God found in a man. So that in the person and the work of Jesus, we can not only say that God is love, but we can also say and see, behold how he loves. Behold how he loves in a way that staggers the believing soul to see how far the love of God extends. When we see the God-man at work, in other words, we see the pity of God and the love of God in a way that we who are mere men can know and can understand deeply through expressions of love that we can understand when we observe them as coming through a man like us through expressions of grief that God can never have, through sufferings that God can never experience. We know more of the love of God because he is showing it through the humanity of Jesus so that we can never doubt the love of God for us who believe. As you consider that, just note the name of the town he entered, Bethany. Its name is ripe with meaning, (laughs) and I think is special meaning for this text and for all of us. The name means what? House of the afflicted or house of the poor. You know, you see, Christ has entered Bethany, the house of the afflicted and the house of the poor for his people because they are afflicted and they are poor themselves. And what do we know of Christ? The eternal Son of God, who is rich, perfectly blessed forever. Come into the world for our sakes, into the house of the afflicted, into this fallen world. What does the scripture say, believer? For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for who? Your sakes he became what? Poor. That ye through his poverty might be what? Rich. Second Corinthians 8, 9. And in that text, then we also say and exclaim, Oh, behold how he loves. As you think of him coming from heaven and all the riches he enjoyed to come down and take on flesh, to be humiliated in that way, to under in a state of humiliation for us into the house of the afflicted in the incarnation. You think of this. He didn't, he wasn't born into Herod's palace. 
He did not go into Augustus's palace. He came for those of us who hunger and thirst after righteousness to fill us. He came to have compassion on the afflicted. He came to Bethany. And how glad we are, right, that Jesus did not make a detour around the afflicted, that he goes straight into Bethany, and he doesn't go around places like Bethany. If you are in a place like Bethany, friend, beloved of God, he says that in him you are blessed, aren't you? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And you have a special sense of that here in this text as, as, as his friends are mourning. Why are we blessed in that beatitude? Because this kind of person is who Jesus visits. This is the kind of person Jesus visits. This is where Jesus comes. You know, the blessing, this is where we, we might look at the beatitude, right? And we might think that this happiness is an abstracted happiness. That I'm happy if I am mourning. Or, I am happy if I am poor in spirit. It becomes sort of an oxymoron to us. No, we are blessed because Jesus visits these. We are blessed because in Him we are blessed. We are blessed because He visits those who are poor in spirit and those that mourn to comfort them. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit, Psalm 34, 18 says. And we say, behold how He loves And do you want to see the sympathy of Jesus to you, beloved? Do you want a glimpse of it tonight? Do you want your strength, uh, your faith, rather, strengthened in sorrow? You need to pick up this text when you need it. Look at verse 33, right? When Jesus saw Mary weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. He was deeply moved by her. He was deeply moved in his own spirit. He groaned. What is this but God's love in humanity showing the deepest compassion and pity? This is the love of God expressed in a man. This is why the love of God uh, has Jesus Christ. It moves Jesus, right? Not from any external factor. It moves the Son of God, I should say, to be more technical. It moves the Son of God, not from anything external to himself, but in his own self, he groans. And so he has come into the world to save sinners terribly moved by his people's sorrows. The thing that staggers me about this text is Jesus is so greatly moved, but you have to think about the whole context, shouldn't you? He's deeply moved, even though what? He knew how this would all turn out. Right? He does not say to Mary, as some of us might, um, they're there. It's going to be okay. Now, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know, in, in a few moments, you shouldn't be crying, right? In a few moments, all will be well, and you won't even have a passing care anymore. No, he, when he sees his people's sorrows, even when his people's sorrows will be wiped away by his own hand, he still groaned. He still sympathizes with her own sorrows, do you see that about your Lord Jesus Christ, right? He's not, he's not unfeeling in the highest sense. He actually cares about what his people are feeling moment by moment, even though he's going to resolve it all. And that's an extraordinary thought, isn't it? He knew that Lazarus and his friends would rejoice, 
but he groaned and was troubled. Let that be a comfort to you today. Does he not know that he will take you to glory? Yes. Does he not know that he works all things for your good? Yes. And yet, even though he knows the end from the beginning, in the midst of it, he is touched with sympathy for you. Though he will wipe away all those tears in due time. He is touched for you in this time and in this moment. This time when sorrow endures for a night, he is still touched and sympathetic, even though he knows your joy will come in the dawn and in the morning. He says to you, brother, and he says to you, sister, cast your cares on me, for I care for you. Even though he knows all your cares will be removed one day. And so he is asking, in a sense, from this text, will you come to him when you mourn over your sin? Will you come to him when you are distressed in trials? Do you not think that you have a sympathetic heart beating in heaven's throne for you? Have you never beheld how deeply he loves you? Even though, and that's what's amazing here, right? The Jews knew it here. His own enemies knew it. Will you not know it? Will you not see it today? And will you not believe that he loves you when the Jews knew that they saw the love of God in Christ. And if his groaning were not enough to convince you of his sympathy, he weeps. And you recognize his humanity in that act, don't you? And actually, you can also be comforted by this. Godly sorrow which produces tears is no sin at all. It's not something to be ashamed of. Our Savior wept. Our sinless Savior wept. But he was touched by his friends' agonies and sorrows. And undoubtedly, he was also touched by what sin had done. Death had entered the world due to sin. And how that grieved him. How sin had affected all those who are beloved of him. And he wept over sin. But he had come to abolish sin and death for his people at such a great cost. But his tears are a token of that, aren't they? Of how deeply affected he was by his people's plight over what sin had done. And it's that same weeping that shows us how, how willing he was to go to the cross for his people. And it was this weeping that was the cause of the Jews to say, and I think it's so amazing that it's his own enemies in a sense who said, behold how he loved him. Even those who were not his friends saw your Lord's compassion, and they were astonished. Now, have you, who are his friends, lost your astonishment over his compassion? Have you ever exclaimed, Wow, behold how he has loved me and all of his people. It's so easy to lose the wonder of it, isn't it, friends? So you must return to it over and over again. When troubled and vexed, perhaps the place you have to go is to this text so that it might speak this word to you in your trials. Behold how he loves. And before Jesus goes to raise Lazarus from the dead, he groans again. You know, before he acts, he groans. I suppose there are many reasons for this and time would fail me for this second groaning. I think there's some clues in the text as to why. But surely one of these reasons was his own sympathy for Lazarus, right? And I think this is probably something that we don't think about much. You're thinking, what a great miracle, right? Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead. But in a sense, friends, this is a sorrowful thing. 
to return Lazarus to his body because he has been in the direct presence of God all this time. And now he has to come back into this mortal coil, so to speak. He has beheld the face of God in light and glory. And Jesus must have grown knowing to show kindness to Mary and Martha and to show that he is the Christ to his disciples. He must bring Lazarus back from beholding the very face of God. And how he who knew the face of God so intimately and so closely would have sympathized in that as well. Because Jesus knows what heaven is like and he knows what Bethany is like as well. This world, the house of the afflicted. And how awful in one sense it would be to bring Lazarus back to the affliction that he had just been loosed from. And so he groans. You know, when the Lord takes me on the day in which he has appointed I do not want to come back. I really don't. As much as I love you all, it is a far better thing to be with Christ. Jesus groaned because Lazarus would have to come back to the house of affliction for a time. And that, in a sense, is sorrowful. Well, what you see before you is the man of sorrows, beloved. Do you see what turmoil our afflictions have caused in his own soul? Our affliction and our sin has brought the Lord to groaning and tears. And there's a heaviness there that's really hard to convey. And it's going to be even greater, of course, on the cross when he groans in agony. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Isaiah 63, 9, though, and now you get an understanding. I don't know if the people in the Old Testament really understood what Isaiah 63, 9 portended. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bare them and carried them all the days of old. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. What a word that is. Now, theologians are quick to say that this text is an anthropopathism because God is forever blessed and he can never be afflicted. And that is absolutely 100% true. Uh, boys and girls, an anthropopathism is a figure of speech where God speaks often as though he were a man, right? That his love and care for us is so great, he speaks as though he is afflicted. But I think that doesn't go far enough. We're too quick to say anthropopathism. No, I think that Isaiah 63.9 is revelatory. It makes you ask the question, if God were a man, what kind of man would he be? If God were a man, what kind of man would he be? And the answer is, for his people's sake, he would be a man of sorrows, afflicted for our own affliction. And so, when you remember God chose to become man, the Lord Jesus Christ, you can return to Isaiah 63, 9. When he could be afflicted in the human nature, he was afflicted. For our sake. And that was his own doing. That was his own choosing. No one chose that for him. He did it himself to show us what? His love and pity. But not just to show, but as Isaiah 63 9 says, to carry us and to save us and to be our substitute on that cross to show us the truth that in all their affliction, he was afflicted. To become a man who could be afflicted because the divine nature never could be. To become incarnated to be afflicted for his people. To groan and to weep, even to suffer the wrath of the Father and die on our behalf. 
When you look at a text like these, all, this, all those truths must come flooding into your soul so that you understand in a way the Jews never did. Behold how he loves. That takes us, though, to our second heading. Behold how he loves in his works. It is out of his great love and pity for us that compels his actions. This is the first uh, consideration I think we ought to have in this text in our heart, which is his love for us in hard providences. And I want you to behold how he loves in that. Remember, Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, but he did not keep him from dying. Recall his reasoning for the delay. He said to his disciples in verses 14 and 15, he said plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe, 11, uh, 14 uh, through 15, chapter 11, 14 through 15. Did you hear that? He was glad that he did not keep Lazarus from dying. So here are these two things, right? He, he mourns the death of Lazarus, but he's glad at the same time. For their sake, he had a greater purpose in Lazarus's death. And so we think on our trials, we think on our hard providences and the grief that we have. And sometimes we think, Lord, why do you not love me? You've heard this before in Martha. If you were here, Lord, Lazarus would not be dead. As though Jesus doesn't know what he is doing. It's like, Lord, if you had just been here, then he wouldn't have died and the sorrow would not be here. But the Lord came to accomplish a greater end that his disciples would believe, that they would have their faith strengthened in him when Lazarus is raised, dead long enough, of course, that he stinks and it could not be a parlor trick, that they would see his power exercised in love and believe the gospel. All that to say, right, and again, this text is too rich to preach in one sermon, Hard providences, this is what I want you to take away. Hard providences are never at cross purposes with Christ's love. Instead, they are an expression of his love, hard as that is to believe, both to you and perhaps to others as well. That's the wisdom of Christ, which far excels our own, right? If Martha... Uh, Martha had gotten her way, right? If the Lord had been there, actually, uh, the Lord's love would not been manifested in its fullness as it ought to have been. That's the thing, friends. This is the wisdom of Christ. God's design and providence are too wonderful for us to comprehend in its fullness. And you must, by faith, believe that whatever comes to pass, however hard it is, he has his loving kindness behind it to believers. What you must do is say by faith, uh, I am not wise enough, I am not holy enough to understand or comprehend it in this time. But as sure as it was in this text, I believe that my hard providence is an expression of Christ's love. An expression of what? As we remember Romans 8, all things working together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. To which all you can do is pick up a text like this and say, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Now you remember when the Jews exclaimed, behold how he loved, it was before Lazarus was raised. You know, even before the Lord acted, his tears told the story. And so that when in the miry pit, before the Lord resolves the difficulty, you need to say, Behold how he loves, right? The difficulty has not been resolved, and yet you can still see the love of Christ. 
One day you will see the tapestry of providence as we've preached on that recently in all of its fullness. See all of its grand strands and the weaving of God. One day you will look upon it in its completion and you will say with astonishment, behold how he loves. Every trial, every sin, every death, every earthly loss will be woven together and you will see the beauty of providence that has been woven by Christ's own hand. But are you to wait until then? Or are you to say with the light that you have, behold how he loves? You are to do it now, right? But the supreme demonstration for his love, the thing that we behold and gasp in astonishment, right, is the cross. But God commendeth his love toward us. This is that great work. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. This is the supreme manifestation, not his tears at Lazarus's graveside, but really him going to the cross is really the ultimate demonstration that our high priest is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And if the Jews saw Christ's love demonstrated in his tears, How much more ought you recognize his love demonstrated in his blood? I mean, that's a serious question. If they saw it in his tears, and maybe you do too, how much more ought you to see it in his blood? If the enemies of God saw his love in tears, you must never, never, ever miss the love of Christ in the blood. You behold Christ crying on the tree for you, right? Gasping, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you say, behold how he loved. Why is he on that tree? It's because of you and me, sinners. And you say, my God has forsaken Jesus Christ for me. Behold how he loved. Behold Christ who was born our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet what did we do? We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And you say, behold how he loves. Why this love? Because we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you can't be touched by that, friends, and you can't see that as the love of God expressed in Christ, you have a lot of work to do with the Lord today, don't you? You really do. How little we esteem this king of glory who came down out of the blessedness of heaven to Bethany to be poor for our sake, that enter the house of the afflicted. Our house, our world, we made the house when we sinned, but he suffers for us to reverse our mess. How little we esteem and adore our Savior. You need to study in great detail how he loves you that you would know it out of the testimony of his scripture. You must know it, friend. Ask the Lord for faith to believe it in trials, temptations, and chastisement. Cry out, as we all must, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. If you struggle in seeing how he loves you, especially when you are afflicted, one day you will recognize how he has loved you when he takes you to glory. And your life is but a vapor. This time of trials and temptations is fleeting. You know that the Lord has put a constraint on your lifespan is a great mercy to believers. This is the closest, right, as better men have said, that you are going to get to hell is this present life. 
Even the greatest joys you have in this life is the closest you're going to get to hell. Right? That's a mercy. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, 2 Corinthians 4.17. Our affliction is called light, and it's called for a brief moment. But what did you hear there? Not only is it light and momentary, he works through it. And he works what? A far more exceeding uh, 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 and eternal weight of glory. Through these light, temporary afflictions like Lazarus, Mary, and Martha faced, he is working through those a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The weight of glory awaits you all believers. And as I continue to age, right, and it's the same for most of you who are around my age or older, time rushes past. It slips through your fingers. At first, it's easy to be discouraged by it. But the more you grow in faith, the more I see that the Lord is hastening that moment where he will wipe away every tear from my face. That day when all sin, all my sin, all my doubt, and all my unbelief will be stripped away from me. When I will cry, see how he loves in a fullness I cannot quite yet. That day is coming. And on that day, I will even recognize how much he he loves me by suffering on the cross for my sin of refusing to see how much he loves me. What a thing that is. I will be astonished when I see that he pitied me and I will exclaim, behold how he loved a sinner like me. Remember the aim of his pity, right? Why does he suffer? Why does he suffer in our place? It's to take you into the estate found in Revelation 7.16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun uh, uh, light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living uh, fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. He came down into the Bethany's of this world so that he could wipe away your own tears. He came to shed his own tears and his own blood so that he could wipe away your tears when there was no one to wipe his tears away. He is leading you and shepherding you to that time and place. So you need to behold how he loves. And so finally, I want to leave one exhortation for you before we close, which is show how he loves You know, if you do not have saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today, on that last day, you will watch as believers uh, enter eternal blessings, as they take their place at the wedding supper of the Lamb, as you take your place, where? In the lake of fire. And you will say with gritted teeth, gritted teeth, you'll hate having to say it. You will see those seated at Christ's banqueting table, and you will say, behold how he loved as you see them enter an eternity of blessing, beholding the face of Jesus Christ. And the question the Bible asks is, why die in your sin? Why would that be your your destiny? Is the Savior that we preach today not worthy of such great faith, friends? Is the Savior who wept and groaned for the sake of sinners not worthy of faith? You need to come to him. Come to him in repentance and in faith and believe on him. Turn from the sin that has so easily ensnared you and me. You are a sinner, but do you not see in this text that Christ loves sinners? He can save you from your sin and he can cut sin's power at the root, which is found in your own heart. 
Turn to Jesus for forgiveness and take his love for yourself. Look at verse 25, which is our gospel hope. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? This is really, in some ways, the central question of the Scripture. Do you understand this? Do you believe this? What say you, friend? Believest thou this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that those who believe on him will never truly die? That even when they die, as you see a a, a small picture of here in Lazarus, that they sleep in the grave until the day they are raised again by the power of Christ on the resurrection day. And so in so doing, they never truly die. You need to say with Martha, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Can you say it? If so, praise God. You are headed to glory. You will never die. The resurrection is before you, and it is coming. And as short as this life is, we praise God for that, because the day is coming when you will have no more sorrow, and there will be no more tears before the face of God. And as a church... We are to proclaim this gospel of Christ's love to others that they might believe. In John 12.32 is the promise, and I, that's the next chapter, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. After the Lord is resurrected, he's going to raise all kinds of men unto himself. We are to be his witnesses to that, as we heard last week in Luke's gospel. You are to proclaim as we will on Friday in the evangelism. Behold how he loves. Right? This ties so neatly into our, uh, this is one of the reasons I chose this text tonight, is because we just came out of Luke 8, didn't we? Where the man was told, go and tell others of the great compassion that the Lord has had on you and what great things he has done for you. And in that you are to also then say, behold how Jesus Christ loves. And we are to resolve to be a church that will preach Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 1.23 Christ crucified, why? Because he loves sinners. God forbid that we should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we are to make them see Christ's love not only in the preaching, but here uh, is another point of contact maybe for us from our themes today, but in your love for one another. Verse 11 grips me each time, and it's a staggering. You know, sometimes it's the smallest words in the Bible that have the greatest impact. Jesus said what? Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. I don't know if you notice how amazing that is. Our friend. Lazarus. Jesus is drawing himself into the circle, isn't he? Our friend Lazarus. Staggering, isn't it, that Jesus Christ has friends among sinners? He is truly the friend of sinners, isn't he? But we must be friends then one to another too in Christ. Jesus says to you who are sitting here, our friends in the preaching of the gospel. Our friends. We are all friends of Christ and friends of one another. His friends ought to be your friends. And the world must see that in the church there is unity. He said, the world will know you are his disciples if you what? Love one another. 
And certainly in this circle you see a great love. Love one to another as well as to Christ. You are to look at your brethren, right? And not just say, behold how he loves me. But you are to look, and this is where at communion time, this is so important for us. You are to say as they take their sip of the chalice and they take their portion of the bread, behold how he loves them and him and her and how he loves us. All of you seated here can say it. We are all friends forged in Christ's love. There's nothing like it in the world. We are in a world racked with racial tensions, class warfare, and all kinds of other contentions. They need to hear the message of the cross this way, that we can be friends in Christ because we are the friends of Christ. And surely our communion, our fellowship one to another is meant to reflect Christ's love. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love. Why? as Christ also hath loved us. You see here, what is behold how he loves supposed to lead us to? Oh, we are to walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. The love of God in Christ, of giving himself up for us, is meant to not just have a, um, a vertical love to God, through Jesus, but also one to another. Love God and love neighbor. You see how Jesus then fulfills both tables of the law. That is meant to be the response of the believing soul, is to love God and love neighbor for such pity, love, and grace as you have received. And what a Savior you have received, beloved, as you see him here in this text. Ought we not love one another? Ought we not love him above all? Well, our meditation, I'll leave this here then, because our meditation on Christ's love demonstrated is going to continue in Luke's gospel. And so I thought this was a great bridge to that uh, when we come to it. You've already seen his compassion on the former demoniac. You're about to see his love for uh, Jairus and his daughter. You're about to see his love for the woman with the issue of blood. You're about to see his compassion over and over and over again. And you are to say, behold how he loves Behold how he loves. And it's that same love that sends him to the cross, isn't it, at the end of the book? That very same love all throughout. And so when you see God as love, you see it demonstrated in a way God could never demonstrate it in the divine. Right? In the divine nature could never demonstrate these things. And so in humanity, Jesus Christ has come to show you his love. And the day is coming, right, friends, that uh, you are going to experience forever in the direct presence of God the love of Jesus Christ, where you will be filled with the fullness of God's love, eternally basking in it in glory. And each day, or however time might work in that time, you will be, without any sin, you will be abounding in the love of God in the direct presence without sin, clouding him to you. And you will say, every moment, every day, behold how he loves me. Behold how he loves me. That'll be the eternal state as you see the glory of God and he shows you more and more as you are filled with the fullness of God, how he loves you. But today you are to know it as well. May that encourage you as you leave this place and may the Lord keep you until the day he calls you to himself. Amen. Please rise for prayer if you are able. Our Father in heaven, we are reminded that in this world we will often meet, weep and mourn. How thankful we are, Father, to see that our Savior did as well. 
and not for any fault of his own. But he truly, really, didn't he weep because of our faults? Didn't he weep because of our sins? Didn't our Savior bleed because of all of that? And yet knowing that he would come and weep, that he would come and bleed, our Savior came into Bethany, into the house of affliction for his people who are sinners. And we thank you for that, Father, because we would be without hope if you had not given us such a compassionate high priest as this. We thank you and bless you for our Lord Jesus Christ. And we could never repay you if we had to repay you for all that he has done for us. Instead, Father, we come to your mercies as beggars. Surely as Lazarus could give you nothing, we can give you nothing either. But instead, we open our arms wide to receive the mercies of God. So would you pour out the love of God into our souls by the Spirit's working now? Would you use it to sustain us as we make our pilgrimage through Bethany in this life? Whether our Bethany is Fairview or our Bethany is the DFW Metroplex or even some other place persecuted for the sake of the gospel. We pray, Father, if any here do not know Jesus, that this would be the day of salvation. And by the Savior's tears and compassion, but most of all his cross, they would come to him. Bless your people now in these ways, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.